Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. Two times a year uh, talks on the subject of money and of giving. And this is it. It coincides with our final talk on the book of Philippians, uh, where Paul actually speaks about precisely these two things, money and giving. Uh, next week is uh, Advent. We will be building up to Christmas. Uh, but this is the second of two money talks, the first of which wasn't really about money. It was more about anxiety last week. So money and giving. Are you ready? What I need to say before we start is, for whatever reason, people turn up out of nowhere for this service. They cannot help themselves. They haven't been for ages or they don't live here anymore, but they come back and then they come to this service about money. And I'm also aware that there's often people who are guests here, they're checking us out. Please, can you just allow everything I have to say to sort of wash over you? Hopefully you'll find it interesting. But uh, really, this is for the home team. This is for people who call bread their church. Um, for everyone else, you may find it challenging and interesting. You may decide, actually, that was such a good talk on money. I want to join this church. Uh, you're very welcome. And then you can give all the money you like as well. Um, but for um, those who are just checking us out, feel free to continue to check us out for as long as you like. But uh, without further ado, let us read from the Bible. Uh, this is uh, Philippians 4, from 10 to 20, and I believe Jess is going to read it. Jess. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you, received your con you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and I have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, there are a they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God 
will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, uh, Jess. So, uh, Paul, who wrote this letter, uh, spent his days traveling around, as I'm sure many of you are aware, uh, the sort of Near East in the years directly after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he spent his time preaching uh, the Christian faith, planting churches, converting people to the way of Jesus. This was his divine calling, his life's work. And at whilst at many times um, he would need to support himself financially, uh, he was a tent maker by trade, and now and again he would go and do some tent making and, I guess, tent selling to raise money. For most of the time, though, he was actually supported uh, by gifts of money from the churches that he founded. And so it's that financial support that is in view here in this passage. Paul has, verse 18, received from Epaphroditus the gifts the Philippians sent. So this is Paul at the end of his letter thanking the Philippians for their generosity. So why, oh why, oh why does Paul seem so ungrateful? Did you notice this? I'm not sure if you experienced the same thing. I've probably read this passage millions of times before, but, and I was reading it this week, and I just felt like Paul is on such a downer. Why can't he just be thankful? He's kind, but he's keen for them to know that, verse 11, I am not saying this because I am in need. Good to know. And again later, he's sort of being appreciative of the money, but it's also very important for him to say, not that I desire your gifts. Good old Paul, being the sanctimonious one that sometimes he can appear to me. Just say thank you. Have you ever done something to someone that was really kind, and then they haven't said thank you? Isn't it annoying? I remember Hannah and I were talking. Um, Hannah's very generous. She often goes, says things like, oh, I think we should uh, do this or do this or do this, and I'll go, really? And then I'll pray about it and go, yeah, we probably should do. Anyway, one time she said, I really think we should buy this person some flights. We've got the wherewithal to do. Let's buy some, this person flights. She really needs it. Let's buy the, the flights. And we bought the flights. And then this person, don't worry, it's no one here. It's a long time ago. Uh, but this, <laughs> this person decided, um, we managed to make us feel like we really should have bought those flights for her quite a long time earlier, and that possibly we should have bought the flights in a better cabin, and, and possibly uh, that um, actually uh, maybe we should have uh, done more than just buy the flights. Anyway, uh, why was I saying this? Oh, yes. Doing things that you don't always get thanks for. But what I've come to realize is that Paul is not doing this. It may sound a little bit like that, but really uh, it exposes more of my attitude towards money than it does Paul. Paul is not being unappreciative. He rejoiced greatly, verse 10. He's called the gifts he's received not just an acceptable sacrifice, but that it's also pleasing to God. It's a fragrant offering. In fact, he is so thankful that he ends up not being able to stop himself spilling out over into praise and worship, verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is not being unappreciative. But the reason he says, not that I really need this, the reason he says, not that I desired that money, 
is because Paul is at pains to show that he is far more appreciative for the reasons behind the money being given than just the money in and of itself. Because Paul wants to show that in the kingdom of God, people are much more important than money. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. What is behind the giving of money is the fact that the Philippians actually really care. They love Paul. He's already called them his joy and his crown. They are his brothers and sisters. He's told them that he loves them, that they are his beloved. And now clearly the feeling is actually mutual. mutual. They love him too. And that is what is behind them supporting him. They have a concern, a godly concern. And when you care for someone, you want to look after them. And what Paul wants to say is it's not the money, it's the care. That's what I am appreciative of. Because care for people is far more valuable than just a lump of money. And secondly, more important than money, is the partnership in the gospel. Verse 14. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. It was good of you to share in my troubles. By troubles, Paul means what he is going through in order to preach the gospel. He is there sitting in a jail cell bound to the Praetorian Guard, expecting any day that he's going to be executed, all for the sake of people meeting the risen Jesus through his preaching, all for the sake of the wondrous love of Christ being made to the, known to the world, all for the sake of lives being transformed, hurts healed, sins forgiven, past redeemed, life in all its fullness, love shed abroad in people's hearts, all for this sake that Paul can bring Jesus to people. And the Philippians have shared in his mission because they too love the gospel. So Paul is not being unappreciative of the gift. He's just more appreciative of things that have more value. You see, at the time, Hellenistic culture would operate on a structure both for friendships and for sort of client-patron relationships that was almost entirely transactional. Whether it was your best buddy or your business party partner, one party would give the other something and the other would receive it with the expectation that the transaction was then reciprocated next time round. Nothing was ever unconditional. Everything had to be accounted for. And what Paul is doing here is therefore subverting the whole thing and infusing it with the gospel. He's saying, I'm not your client. You're not my patron. Our friendship is not based on what you can do for me and what I can do for you. What he is saying is we are partners. Partners in the good news of the kingdom. And we are brothers and sisters of the same Heavenly Father whose primary marker is one of unconditional love. So, says Paul, that is what I'm going to rejoice about. He's not being sanctimonious. He's just got his priorities correct. The problem is our temptation to see Paul not being appreciative enough of the money is actually quite exposing of where our hearts are at. What it exposes is just actually how important we think the money is. 
Surely if you've been given all this money, Paul, you will say thank you for it over and over again because it's money, because it's money, and money is the most important thing in the world. And Paul, why aren't you telling them just how thankful and grateful you are? Because money, because money. So how do we get things back in the right order? Where the things that are important to God are the things that are important to us. Fortunately, good old Paul tells us. I have learned, he says, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. Contentment is what we're after. So what is it and how do we get it? That is what this talk is about. Firstly, what is contentment? Well, contentment let me start with what it isn't. It's not just putting up with injustice. Uh, Karl Marx famously criticized religion as the opiate of the masses. What he believed religion did was to numb people. Christianity, he would say, told people to be okay with their circumstances, however bad their circumstances were, to put up with being ruled by powerful, unjust people to toe the line even in the face of injustice. But when it comes to the true message of Christianity, Marx has it very much wrong. Because the message of Jesus is never, if you are in poverty, continue to live in poverty. It is never, if you are being abused, continue to be abused. In fact, Jesus' manifesto is quite the opposite. He has come, he says, to say that in him everything will now change. The oppressed will be set free, the blind will see, the age of God's favor has come in me. From the beginning, the message of Christianity to people who are suffering is this. If you have the power, and in doing so can remain obedient to God, work with him to change your circumstances. Do not be content with an abusive relationship. Do not stay silent and downtrodden and bullied at work. Don't accept some sort of inevitability of racism. In fact, those who knew Jesus were the ones precisely who, in the end, worked to abolish slavery in this country as it was and across the world. And I have to say, it looks like we could do with some new Christians now rising up to combat slavery as it is at our current time. But at the same time, Christians are also realists. We know the stark reality that we cannot always change our circumstances. Either we don't have the power to change them, or to change them would be actually to go against God's will for our lives. But that doesn't mean that contentment also means we don't feel pain or we super-spiritualize it. We are, never to, sorry, we are never supposed to pretend things are wonderful when they are not. I'm sure we have all come across Christians who now and again might do this. Their lives are going really badly, and yet when we ask them how things are, they'll go, it's fine, Jesus has risen, it's fine, when really what they need is your shoulder for them to cry on. Jesus never denied the pain. Do not deny the pain. He wept tears of blood. He pleaded with his father to take the suffering away from him. 
True Christian contentment comes actually in the midst of life, not outside of it. Life will be painful, but we as Christians are not going to be mastered by the pain. But contentment is also not complacency. Either complacency with our fallen nature or complacency with our relationship with God. Contentment is not, yeah, I'm really lazy, always been lazy, and I'm going to stay lazy uh, because I'm okay with it. Or I do get myself into these destructive patterns of behavior from time to time, but, you know, it's all right, I'm not going to do anything about that because grace. Nor is contentment, me and God are good, I guess, and good is good enough, isn't it? The people in the Bible were always discontented, actually, with their spiritual state. The people in in the Bible are actually a bit like Moses, who, when he meets God, he hears God's voice, he saw God's hand, he still says, now God, show me your glory. I want more. I need to see your face. As Christians, it is important for us now and again to remember that there's always more. Do not be content with how things are right now, because it could be so much better. There is always more from God. More Jesus, a phrase I coined on the weekend away, spirit hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do not settle. Do not settle. Your life will be so much better for it. So then, let me ask you, are you content? The signs of a lack of contentment are pretty obvious. Do you grumble a lot? Do you whinge and moan and say, woe is me, God has abandoned me? That, I would suggest, is a sign that you're not very content. Or are you envious? Do you look at what other people have, their money and their jobs and their houses and their success and their relationship, and go, that is not fair. That is not fair. I want the world to know that that is not fair. Or are you covetous? Do you look at what other people have, their money and their jobs and their houses and their success and their relationships, and go, I should have that. I should have that. They shouldn't. Or if they're going to have it, I should have it too. I should have it. Are you envious? Are you covetous? Are you someone who grumbles a lot? That would suggest that perhaps there's still work to do on the whole contentment front. Shall we all agree? Paul says he's learned to be content in all circumstances, every single one. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need and still content. Now, the word need literally means uh, to be humbled. It means to bend low, in fact. Paul is saying, I know what it is to be content even when I am being forced to do things that I think are way beneath me. Paul was actually a pretty privileged guy. He was a Roman citizen, citizen of the most powerful nation on earth. And he was educated, and his mind, as you can read in his writings, was active and intelligent. He was a creative force to be reckoned with. He was the kind of person who probably could do anything that he put his mind to. 
And so when he is sitting in jail, as he is writing this, chained to a big hunk of Roman sweaty, stinky guard, probably existing on bread and water, maybe not having seen daylight for quite some time, always possibly with the threat of execution around the next corner. This is what he's talking about when he says, I know what it is to be in need and still content. So can I ask you, how are you doing with contentment when you're in need, particularly if you are in need right now? when you are being humbled. When we first planted this church, we'd had quite a long delay with our visa, and then we finally made it to Culver City, of all places, which is very nice and very vanilla. And we were in Culver City. Apologies to anyone who lives in Culver City. It's very nice, but very vanilla. Anyway, we were there, and we rented this elementary school. And... um, it was, it was really just the four of us who'd come over from England and a few smatterings of other people, but we uh, rented the school to do church in. And we had to put all our equipment in a big gorilla cart with big wheels. And it had um, all the speakers, the coffee stuff, everything. It weighed an absolute ton. And we had to put it in a little shed in our um, backyard of our house. And then in the morning, I would have to get up and open this and drag this through the streets of Culver City to the church. And as I would drag it, I would see all the parents um, of the kids in the school that we went to on their kind of um, Sunday morning stroll to Starbucks with not a care in the world, looking at me with this kind of mix of deep embarrassment uh, and some pity but mainly embarrassment. And I would keep my head down as I pulled this stupid card. And I would, I would resent every step. Don't be like me, is what Paul's saying. I mean, Paul's saying be like me. Don't be like Ed, is Paul, was what Paul's saying. To be content, even in need. but also to be content when things are wonderful, content when you have plenty. One of the most difficult truths of the Christian life to understand is that having loads and loads and loads, rather than being helpful for our faith, is often the opposite. It's what Jesus means when he says it is harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. It's actually more difficult. But do you know, I've been doing this job for about 17 years. I have lost count of the number of times I've talked to people who are very well-meaning and lovely who always say the same thing to me. They go, I just really think that God does want me to have quite a lot of money because I'll be just so good with it. I will be so good with it. I will be so generous with it. I will support incredible things. I won't hold it tightly. I will have quite a nice house. But I will be so good with money. I know quite a lot of people who are um, very wealthy. I wouldn't say in general that they are more content I might say that in general they might be less content. But it doesn't really matter my experience, it matters what Jesus says. And Jesus says that actually a lot of money might actually make things a bit more difficult. 
Because, he says, money's like a god. And you can only serve one. God or money. Now, of course, there is nothing ungodly about being rich. Rather, Jesus' logic is very simple. We've only got one heart. It can only be directed in one direction. So the more money we have, the more temptation we will have to rely not on God, but on money. The more temptation we will have to worship not Jesus, but money. The more temptation we will have to be directed not by the will of God, but by the will of our money. So, do you know contentment in plenty? And let's all be honest for a second. Globally speaking, we have plenty. If you can afford, as my daughter seems to be able to, with remarkable regularity, a $9 match, a disgusting thing, you are very, very wealthy, globally speaking. Do you know what it is to be content? So how has he learned it? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Unfortunately, this verse has often been read in exactly the opposite way that Paul recommended it to be, or originally intended it to be, rather. It's often read like this. I can do through all things through him who strengthens me. The emphasis, though, is not on the I or the me. This is not some sort of self-reliance, stoic mastery, or the current obsession with manifestation. It's precisely, in fact, self-reliance that Paul is having a go at. It was one of the most influential schools of thought at the time, this stoic idea that if we just um, guard our, uh, gird our loins, then we will be able to do anything. It is the power of our will to overcome all things. Paul is saying exactly the opposite. The emphasis is on the him. In other words, it would be this. When he strengthens me, when I let him in, when I put my trust in Jesus, as we have just sung, when I let him be God, that, that is when I am able to do these things, to be content whether I have a little or a lot. What Paul has learned is nothing other Nothing more, nothing less than utter dependency on Jesus. And I do believe this is kind of what God is calling us to do as a church, individually, right now. Renew your dependency on him. Are you grumbling? Are you envious? Are you covetous? Are you worried? Are you showing all the symptoms of a lack of contentment? Renew your dependency on him. Throw yourself onto him again. He is there waiting for you. He cannot wait to beckon you into his arms. Tell him he's God. Worship him. Give yourself to him again. It will do you the world of good. Uh, Linnell, I was going to get you up, but I don't think we've got time. I'm sorry. Let me t- This is... Could we give a round of applause to Linnell? Linnell, would you like to stand? This is Linnell. Um, Linnell was one of the first people to come to the church. And by the church, I mean our living room with about six other people. 
Uh, and Linnell uh, used to sing and worship. She helped out with kids. She was wonderful. Um, she came to see us uh, this week. Uh, she moved to, you moved to Texas in Dallas, Texas, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and she started going to Arizona State University online. And the uh, first person in your family to go to college? Yeah. Uh, which is amazing, isn't it? Um, and you're graduating when? December 11th. Isn't that great? But you know what uh, Linnell came to see us about? She said, I've always felt like God has called me to Ghana, of all places. I met someone when I was a teenager and felt called to Ghana. She is, um, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but she's in the position, and the best position in her, her life, really, to be in this country and to work as a teacher. But she, she felt God call her to Ghana. So she didn't tell anyone, but took quite a few trips out there to find out about it and to apply to some schools there. Um, and she was saying uh, the other day when she came around, I, I just didn't want to tell anyone because I didn't want people saying, what are you doing that for? I wanted it to know that it was God because if it was God, he would do it. And one of the things that I said is, God, if you want me to do this, you're going to have to provide um, uh, transportation. And God, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to provide a job, obviously, and you're going to have to provide housing. And so she got the job. It was amazing at this international school in, in Accra. Uh, and, but she's still praying about the other two things. And then the job said, oh, by the way, we're going to um, uh, cover all your transportation and uh, we'll give you somewhere to live. Isn't that amazing? Now, that's dependency on God. That is saying, God, I place my life in your hands. That is faith. Faith is the magic with God. Faith is what he loves. And whenever we act in dependency on him, we are exercising faith. Do you want contentment? How can we stop being dependent on the power of money? Let me end with some practical tips. I know you love practical tips. Firstly, get the right biblical perspective on money. And by that, I mean a New Testament perspective on money. From a biblical perspective, all the money in the universe is God's. I know we like to think it's ours. It is not ours, it is God's. He is uh, lending it to us and asking us to do some stuff with it. But it is his, it is not yours. You don't own it, don't hold it with tight fists, it's not yours. And so from a New Testament perspective, money is not a sign of God's blessing. How much money did Jesus have? Zero money. How blessed was Jesus? The most blessed human being that ever lived, right? So, money is not a sign of God's blessing. Blessing is a sign of God's blessing. And blessing means knowing the love of your Father in heaven, being given a place in heaven, being told that you are a child of God. Blessing means those who are blessed are the ones who go for the things of God's kingdom. But that is not to say that money is intrinsically bad. Money is neither good nor bad, it is neutral. But it is powerful, fantastically powerful. 
So powerful, in fact, that as Jesus says, it can be personified. It can be deified even as the God mammon. We, as I said earlier, are only built for one God. So any rival God will take our affections, our time, our energy away from us and enslave us into its power. So do not make the mistake of worshipping at the altar of mammon. Whether you have lots of money or little money, we are all susceptible to worshipping it. Rather than run from it, though, we are called to take it and subdue it, to use it for God's kingdom. So get a biblical perspective of money. Do not listen to whatever is on the radio or on Spotify about money. It's all utter BS. Get Jesus' perspective. It will set you free. Secondly, analyze your relationship with money. Do you fear money? Do you hate money? Do you love money? Does money, the subject of money, produce shame in you? Are you hating this? Are you feeling ashamed as I speak? Or does it produce pride in you? Analyze what's actually going on for your heart. Thirdly, as we do those two things, grow in our biblical understanding and our um, psychological understanding of where we're at, we can start with some more technical things, like money management. That's what you came to church for, money management. Isn't this exciting? Make a plan. It doesn't have to mean that you become tight and lacking in spontaneity. The opposite is true, in fact. The Philippians have given on a number of opportunities precisely because they have a plan to help Paul. Those who plan can be generous, not just on a whim, but over and over and over again. So plan and have a budget. It'll be good for you. Not in relation to what the world might think is important about money, but what is important to the kingdom of God. Fourthly, talk about and be honest with money, with people, in community. Paul is open and honest with his friends, the Philippians, about money. Do you have people that you can talk about with it? We just really need the support of other people. There can be so much shame around money. It would do us all well to be able to just have open, honest conversations, get God's fresh air to breathe around the whole subject. Are you in debt? Are you struggling? Do you not know what to do with money? Are you bad at planning? Have someone to talk to. If you're married, that should definitely be your spouse. You are one flesh. You should talk about money with your spouse. It's important. If you're not married, find someone that you can talk to. Do a money manage management course if you need. There's lots of good ones around. Some of them are free. But it's not just about being accountable. It's also having people to dream with, to have fun with when you talk about money. Uh, when we were leaving uh, London, we did a fundraiser for this church, uh, from our ascending church in London. It was a big dinner. Everyone was invited. Now, the congregation had a few wealthy people, but most people were poor students or low-income uh, people. And I was thinking, well, this is going to be um, incredible to see what happens. 
And at the end of it, the, uh, the guy who was leading, it, leading the church um, specifically said, Ed, you should go and with our treasurer go and count the money. And he said, but go not to count the money, but to see how many people have given. And the reality was that most of the gifts were pretty small because people didn't have a lot of money. But the number of them blew me away. I think everyone in the room must have given. It was incredible. I was so touched because what it said was, we're in this together. We're doing this as a family. And we know that the, the amount of money is not the issue. It's the fact that we believe in the kingdom of God. We believe in church planting. We believe that this is what God is doing and we want to be part of it found it incredibly moving. This is why you want to share your stories of money, because it will make you go, this is exciting. We're in this together. We could dream big about this. Fifthly, pray. Money is a spiritual matter. Money is not just money. Our greatest weapon in the spiritual realm is prayer. So pray. But do not pray to money. As I said last week, it's like praying to the bombs. Pray to God your Father in heaven who loves you, about your attitude towards money. Pray for freedom from money's power. Pray for other people's money needs. Pray for people's businesses. Pray for people's jobs. Sixthly, dethrone money. I've got about 45 of these, by the way, just so you know. I haven't. Sixthly, dethrone money. For our own spiritual health, we need to find ways to, as one writer puts it, shout no to the God of money. One of the best ways of doing this is showing our utter disrespect to money. When we trample it under our feet, we remove money's power. This is the act of profaning something that the world has made sacred. So find ways to defile and, de de and to defame money. The powers that energize money cannot abide the most unnatural of acts, giving it away. Money, we're told, is for the taking, for the making, for the bargaining, for the manipulating, but never, ever, ever for the giving. But this is exactly why giving has such an ability to defeat the power of money over ours and other people's lives. When we give it, we rob money of its power. And every time we do it, we set ourselves free just that little bit more from its grasp. Uh, point something or other. Seven, I think. Side with money over people just as the Philippians and Paul do. When you give to a church, you're giving to people. What we most desperately need as a church is a number two pastor, a kind of uh, associate minister who uh, looks after people, who does the warm, fuzzy stuff, who does the discipling, who does the praying, who is there for people whenever you need him to be or she to be there or both of them to be there. That's what we desperately need. We also need, because you keep bringing more and more of your children, or you keep having children, we need more kids' workers. We are looking to hire another kids' worker. These are people. And these are people for the people. 
for the people in this room, but also for all the people who are yet to come to the church. But when you're giving to a church, you are primarily giving to people because people matter, and people is what Jesus is interested in. He couldn't care less, really, about that flickering light or the paint job or whatever. He cares about people. And that is what church is about. It's about people. So when you give, choose people over money. Sometimes you might want to forfeit some of your own financial needs for people, for relationships, for restoring a relationship, for making sure that a relationship deepens. It's why it's so important as a couple that you do date nights. Frivolous, ridiculous date nights. Because people are much more important than money. And finally, show no partiality. Uh, James, the book of James, which I don't really like, but it is in there in the Bible. But nevertheless, James says this. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. This is like a stop clock being one right twice a day. Uh, James is right about this. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I went to a church once. There was a celebrity seating at the front. For reasons I do not know, I was ushered to the front and sat on the very front row in front of someone who has 70 million Instagram followers. Uh, she couldn't see past my big head, uh, so they had to move her, and I went, ha. <laughs> we do not favor anyone in the church. In the world, money means power. It means access, it means exclusion, it means getting behind the velvet rope, it means having a special seat on the front. In church, money should mean nothing at all. Let us see all of us for who we are. Absolutely equal, equally loved, equally forgiven, equally in need of Jesus as our Savior, equally in need of one another. That's what it is to be a church. So to end, giving to this church. This next bit, Hannah said, I really don't think you should say, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) If we, as individuals, are called to be dependent not on money, but on God, how much more we as a church? Bread, like any church, should not and cannot be dependent on money. It's not that she didn't believe it. She just didn't want me to say it. We'll we'll, we'll be discussing this later. (laughs) This church is God's, and he builds it. He will sustain it. He will provide, as he always has done. So, the church does not need your money. It is not dependent on anyone's money. I'm just following Paul's logic here. It's God's, and it is dependent on him. As soon as it becomes dependent on money, it's stopped being God's. 
just caught the eye of the treasurer. Daggers does not even come close. (laughs) However, the church, this church, made up of people like you and me, is much, 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 much better off when it is marked by glorious, wonderful, heartfelt generosity. Giving money enables us to do so much more. Giving money allows us to grow into the things that we feel like God is calling us to do. There are things, of course, that we just can't do without money, like hiring the people that I said, like renting this building, like paying the staff team, etc., etc., etc. So, can I ask every single one of you to give? Not as a favor, not because I've asked you to, but as an act of worship, because you are a Christian. In response to all that God has done for you, because you want to say to the world and to its view of money, I believe in something else, because you want to be dependent on God, because you want to worship God, because you actually believe. I mean, do you actually believe? It's a question. Do you actually believe that God will look after you? Do you actually believe that all the money in the world is God's? Do you actually believe? Do it because you believe. Do it because you believe that Jesus wasn't lying. Giving to a church shows you have understood what the church is. Shows that you have understood how integral a part you are to the church. Uh, Martin Luther, who is another, not, I'm not a big fan of his, uh, he did some good things. But he said this, which was good. Uh, there are three conversions that are required. The conversion of the head, the heart, and the wallet. Of the three, the wallet is the hardest. Give because you've been converted, because you've been changed by the Spirit, because you're taking seriously this. So it does not really matter how much you give. What matters is that you give. And not all your giving should go to the church. You should give elsewhere. Give to things that you find interesting. I'd have money to just be able to be the first at the bar. Be generous. Be the one who cannot like, um, stop himself or herself getting their money out so that they can pay the soonest. Have you, do you, don't you love that, the fight to pay with someone? I love that when someone wants to take me on for paying. It's fun. Be that person. Find other things to give to. Christians should be the most generous people in the world because we actually don't think that money is the be-all and end-all of this. So don't just give to the church, but it makes little sense to be part of something that you are not fully part of. So can I ask every single person to give to the church? Now, the Old Testament principle of a tithe, Jesus has fulfilled the whole of the Old Testament. And the only times that tithing is mentioned in the New Testament, it's in the negative. So the idea of giving 10% or 25%, the Old Testament tithe, doesn't apply for Jesus. What Jesus says instead is be generous. Which, if 10% is the bar, 
25% is this bar. Generosity is 100%. It's giving your whole self. However, 10% can be quite a good guide to start things out. So, we're coming to the end of year, and uh, most, uh, not most, some of our money comes in at the end of year. Our budget for the coming year is uh, $790,000. Uh, we'll send stuff around by email, I'll do it in a pie chart next um, service, just as a, an announcement, don't worry, there are no more talks about money. Uh, but our budget is $790,000. Uh, the vast majority of that goes on uh, staffing and all staff-related things. Quite a lot of it goes on rent. Los Angeles is expensive. What we are budgeting for as an end-of-year number is $100,000. We did way more than this last year, but um, we know that uh, times have been tough, and we are trying to be as responsible as possible. So it's $100,000 uh, this end-of-year. We'll keep doing updates. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we went way over that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? It may be that you want to um, start regular giving. You can do this online. Regular giving is a great way of just going, I know I'm doing it. I give it to God, and I don't need to worry about it anymore. I just set it up. It goes out of my account. Great. And then anything else I want to do, I can give over the top of that. If you go to bread.church slash donate, you can find all the ways of setting that up online. We have a benevolence fund. We want to look after those who are struggling, who are part of our congregation. Um, and any money you give, we assign to needs uh, as and when they come in. So uh, know that that uh, is part of where the giving goes. Good, that's probably enough. I've gone on for hours. Let's pray, shall we?